Like I said, we're in, the, we're in a series of 1 Corinthians, and it's, uh, we're, we're in the section of chapter 14, the last uh, uh, little section here from 20, verse 26 to verse 40, and this is going to close out the series or the mini-series of uh, sermons on the spiritual gifts called the charismata, um, the gracious gifts that God gives to his redeemed people so that we can utilize those gifts on the mission to preach Jesus and build up the church. That has been the overriding theme, that we are one body, gifted in different ways, just like organs are, with the one Holy Spirit, who through love serve one another, preach the gospel, and glorify Jesus. So we're going to see this theme taken up in verse 26 here. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He's recapping. He's saying that there's a super Sunday. You've all come in. Everybody's got a gift to utilize that they've picked up during the week. We'll get back to that verse a bit later. But here's the thematic verse, this one and the last verse. He says, let all things be done for building up. That's that word edification. The building up of the body, which we've already heard tonight, is the temple of God in this New Testament age. The body is to be built up. That should be our priority. And look at verse 40. He says, but all things should be done decently and in order. He really sandwiches this whole section with with purpose uh, sentences. The purpose of the spiritual gifts uh, should be edification. And the manner of spiritual gifts, he says in verse 40, should be decency and order. So this is really going to be our our main themes tonight. Decency, order, edification as the spiritual gifts are utilized. And we've gone through, if I can quickly recap, and we've affirmed that we do believe that the miraculous gifts, all of the spiritual gifts, except for those which were specific, sometime only offices, which... so. This is apostles and the prophets, the scripture writers. This was not simply a gift that was given, which would be ongoing. That was an office. Somebody had that gift. They were in a position of authority. Aside from those, we do believe here, or at least I preach, and it doesn't matter if if you disagree. You're welcome to be here, and we're so glad you are. Uh, But this is just what's what's coming out of 1 Corinthians through this loud mouth up here. We believe that the Holy Spirit does still gift in all the miraculous ways as he used to. We do expect some uh, uh, differentiation in the degree since we no longer have prophets wandering around, checking everything, and still writing scripture. Nonetheless, as God gives all of these miraculous gifts of of tongues and prophecies especially, there's rules that are needed to be given by the the Apostle Paul because the church of Corinth has become a, a test tube of what happens when lack of discernment is added in Loads of cultural uh, uh, activities and cultural mindsets of the sinful world are let in. That's put in the test tube as well. You put in a whole bunch of spiritual abilities and then a whole lot of faking those spiritual abilities. You shake it up, you let it incubate for about 18 months and what pops out, bubbles over and manifests is the church of Corinth. That's what was happening. Very little maturity, a lot of ecstatic, exciting spiritual fervor, but very little genuine spiritual gifts. So we've, we've, we've learned that the sovereign Holy Spirit works according to a particular order. It is not that we limit the Holy Spirit and that we limit the omnipotent God, but rather that God has revealed in his word that he works in certain ways. 
And therefore, we can make restrictions and make limitations and have guidelines upon the way that we, sh- we expect the Holy Spirit to work. He will always work in a loving, upbuilding, decent and orderly way through the gifts of the, whole, of, of the church. And today, we're going to see three people who, or three people groups, who would have been ready to shirk off everything that Paul was saying in these sections. He's especially going to address three groups of people and give limitations and guidelines to them in this closing out section, which is just filled with practical implications. He's going to first of all speak to tongue speakers who are immature. So immature tongue speakers. Arrogant prophets or prophecy speakers, arrogant prophecy speakers, and unruly wives. So this is not all tongue speakers who are having the problem. This was not all prophecy speakers who were having the problem. And it's definitely not all wives that were having this problem. But he's going to address the problems in this passage towards the uh, uh, immature tongue speakers, making everything about them. The uh, arrogant prophecy speakers trying to rise to the top of the, of the spiritual ladder, and he's going to also approach the unruly wives who were acting out in a way that was disgraceful towards their husbands. And we're going to see all of that as we go. Again, look back at verse 26 as we start unpacking the text. <clears throat> he says, when you come together, so again, this is a reminder, this is to do with the local church assembly for worship, which should be evangelistic, which should be opening and welcoming, and should be infused by the power of God through the preached word, the worship songs that are sung, and the spiritual gifts being utilized before and after. And he's, he's saying this is a picture when everybody comes together in the worship service, there's these limitations. These same limitations do not apply to your uh, necessarily and in the same way to the small group or to the time after the service or to your own uh, uh, family at home. He says, so on this Sunday, one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He's saying it, uh, uh, the priority here is that every gifted person, which should be everybody, right? If I said every gifted person, I'm not just talking about the, the four or five of us. I'm meaning every Christian who comes, who has a gift of the Holy Spirit, should be coming with a willing submission to order edification, and appropriateness, or decency. That should be the mark of every gifted person. The mark of maturity is not giftedness, but loving, 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 sacrificial service to the church. And so the the question is not, are you able to accumulate and build up and put into an awesome little package all of the things you've learned this week while you've been reading and all of the things you've amassed into your mind this week while you're listening to lectures and all of the tongues that you experienced this week in your private prayer and all of the prophecies that you received this week. You're going to bottle it all up, bring it into church and pop it off like a confetti cannon. That is not what the, the, the heart of a Christian should be coming to the orderly, decent worship service but rather coming and being willing to share only what accords with Paul's limitations and guidelines and only what will be for the beneficial upbuilding of the whole church. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about all of us because it's ultimately about Jesus. So it's not about whether I get to use what's burning under my skin It's not about whether you get to utilize and say and do or sing whatever's underneath your skin, song that you've 
written this week, praise the God. It's not about that. It's about what is good for everybody and glorifying to Jesus. So we don't want to be dead weight. We want to be praying, Lord, use me, gift me, send me, do something with me for the good of the church. But if that means I'm taking the back seat, if that means I'm out of the limelight, I'm, I'm not up on stage, I'm not being seen and no one notices me, then we should all have the heart to say, Lord, let it be so, for even Christ, our King, became a servant. This is our heart. And then really practically, verse tw- we're going to see, first of all, practical limitations for tongues, then practical guidelines for prophecies, and then practical rules for married women. Verse 27, he says, First of all, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So here's the practical limitations for tongues. First of all, he said, if anybody speaks in a tongue. So he's already got the, 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 which we've laid the foundations for in the prior weeks, Paul already has the working assumption that the main usage of the gift of tongues is a private prayer language of individual to the Father that usually has at its, um, it, 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 its content praise and worship to God. That is not understood and interpreted words, but is rather spiritual language to the Father uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual, empowered, spiritual gift. So he's, and, and then we saw that the other uh, reason for, for tongues was a condemnation to those who cannot hear and do not hear. And the only other uh, uh, way that we see tongues being used is, is really just in a form of prophecy with an added level of interpretation. So that somebody is speaking in tongues publicly with interpretation, and so it really just becomes a, a functional prophecy. However, that which we see except for happening once in the book of Acts, and even that, it didn't have interpretation. People just heard them in their own language. Except for that situation, we don't see that happen again in the book of Acts or in the New Testament history. And so, as Paul is saying here, tongues in a public way are going to be completely rare. He's saying, if there are any tongue speakers, then, and and so go the limitations. It's not impossible, and so he says later on, do not forbid the speaking of tongues. However, his assumption is that the much more likely gifts are those which are for upbuilding, and that is not usually the gift of tongues. It is first and foremost a private prayer language to God. So he adds this, he says, if anyone is going to speak in a tongue, and God has ordained that it will be a public speaking uh, for the edification of the people in an orderly and decent way, if that's going to happen, then have only at the most two or three, he says there. Even if this miracle is occurring, you can see Paul's not going to jump on the, on the bandwagon and say, man, if it's happening, start the line, get it churning, coals on the fire, do what we can, let's get this party started. He's still willing to say, even if this rare gift is going to be utilized, it will take place in an orderly way. And the most that you'll have doing that on any given Sunday is two or three. So practical, practical limitation here, even on this miraculous, amazing gift. Because the the preached word is the priority for the gathered assembly. The word of God being opened, the infallible word being explained and applied is 
the main portion of worship. It is, is the priority, the high point, the main part of why Christians gather. It's not the only part. But it is what is distracted from if we prefer the miraculous, the ecstatic, the amazing tongues. We will be distracted, and Paul therefore says, only two or three at most, if ever. And then he adds a third limitation. He says also, in verse 27 there, each in turn, meaning one at a time. Undercutting the whole the whole. Uh, way that tongues was being utilized, when it was all together creating chaos and waves of, of tongue speaking, he cuts that out and says, no, one at a time. And then in verse uh, 27, he says, and let someone interpret. Because as we've seen, unless the tongues is interpreted, no one can say amen to the praise, or no one can obey or be encouraged or consoled by the prophecy that's coming. So tongues needs to be interpreted if it is at all public. We, see, we saw this back in verse uh, 16. Um, it says, of speaking in tongues, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, being not a tongue speaker, how can they say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? So for this reason, there needs to be interpretation. Otherwise, like verse 23 says, if a whole church comes together and speaks in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? Some of you have been to those churches. Some of you have been unsaved and you got invited by a friend along there and you amen to what Paul just said. Yeah, I get what he means. They were crazy. A dude was barking. The music was loud. There's a dude shaking on the ground. I don't know whether to do CPR, administer insulin or run. But the conclusion was not to throw my faith in Jesus Christ, who is the savior of sinners, because that wasn't made super clear. So Paul is again showing the, the, the necessity, if tongues will occur, three at the most, one at a time, and let it be interpreted. Verse 13 says, Therefore, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So I'm going back to some of the verses sort of skipped over in prior weeks. If one speaks in a tongue, he should pray that he may interpret. So this leaves open to the fact that if there's not an interpreter on standby, if there's not somebody who's been recognized with that gift beforehand, who's somebody, if, if they have received a tongue during worship or, or during the, the sermon or whatever it is, that, that they would come and address the, the person sitting somewhere who's got a chair, says interpreter on it, you walk up to them, you say the tongue. If it's not interpreted, then they should be praying that they can interpret it. And if not, then it's just not what God wants to share. But this is a far cry, isn't it? If we were to be realistic, and by realistic, people usually mean pessimistic, and that's, that's fair in this situation. Like, let's just be realistic, really just means worst case scenario. Uh, if you were to imagine the Corinthian assembly in a before and after format, before Paul's written this letter, maybe even in the service before they open up the scroll, like they didn't go to the, to the effort of pre-reading what they're about to call out uh, during the ceremony, and so they all come in, they're doing their crazy stuff, they've just had a horribly idolatrous Lord's Supper, somebody's now dead, they're carrying him out, somebody else is trying to resurrect him, speaking in tongues, it's going crazy, now it's sermon time, they open up the scroll and they start reading chapter 12 through 14, the difference would be enormous. Imagine everybody speaking in tongues, so not just two or three, everybody doing it all at the same time, not one at a time, and no one's interpreting. 
And then what Paul says is, only two or three, and it must be one at a time, and it's to everybody, and it has to be interpreted before you come up and share it. He's not going to just let people have their go, oh, it wasn't interpreted, well, we'll sit on down. It has to be ready to be interpreted in the speaking. You can imagine, not that Paul is completely shooting out the whole practice of tongues, he says not to forbid it, and yet realistically we understand. He has completely stopped all of the frenzy and cut out the majority of what they would have been experiencing because it had been faked. There is a practice that, that, that you know, I, I get in this conversation with friends who are Pentecostal pastors or non-friends who are Pentecostal pastors, and, and, and they'll, they'll say things like, you know, I'll come to your worship service, and, and where's 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? Where's the opportunity for tongue? Where commanded by Paul? You have to have some tongues and some prophecy and all the rest. That's not what Paul is saying in these texts. We have not been shown an image of a normal, stable, God-glorifying, gospel-preaching church to whom Paul writes and says, get some tongues going, get some prophecy happening. It's the church for crying out loud. Rather, he's tamping down what has already been going crazy in the Corinthian church. So that what we're getting today is a ceiling. This is the max of what should be happening in the church when not being commanded a minimum where that the Spirit is not active if these things aren't happening in the assembly. I hope that's clear. Context, especially to whom Paul is writing, this context means a lot for us. So here's the, the, the practical part of it, that, that, that all of the, the fakery and all of the, 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 the mind, the, the peer pressure or the group thinking tongues is all been cut out. And only what is really willing to go and stand the test of interpretation and being out in public and one at a time without other people hearing it. Like you can't just copy what the dude next to you is saying, hoping that sort of gets it going. You got to have your own tongue presented. Anyway, the message here really practically is maybe, maybe even for you. Maybe you are somebody who God has gifted by his spirit with that gift of being able to speak in tongues in prayer and praise. Like Paul, we will not forbid that here. However, it needs to be done in a way that is not distracting to anybody else in the church, even the person one chair away from you. Some of you are somebody who, who as you worship, often you, you, you feel that the Spirit leads you into speaking in tongues. That is fine. Yet being a spiritual prayer, it does not need to come loudly out of your mouth. It does not need to be done in a way that will distract or, if I can share my own experience, give a fright to somebody standing next to you. I remember my first time. I got a very big fright. I thought he was whispering at me. So I looked at him, leaned in. He looks back at me. We're making eye contact. He's just continuing to go. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. I'm, I'm weirded out here. Let's, let's avoid that. Can I spare the rest of you that kind of awkward, awkward situation? <clears throat> so if you are a tongue speaker, let it not be something that is audible and heard by others because the worship, the words that are rationally understood and agreed to with hearty amens and loud singing is the priority. And of course, the same is during the worship. So in all of this, the immature tongue speaker is being managed, put in place, and has removed all of the abilities, all of the, the freedom and the laxity that would allow those immature tongue speakers to have a go in the church. It does, however, allow for the genuine while it quenches the false. Secondly, we see in verse 29 through 32 
practical guidelines for prophecy. Now, we called it limitations for tongues because Paul is actually drawing it back, whereas we're just going to call it guidelines for prophecy because Paul is not in any way pulling back on prophecy. He's already said how functionally edifying it is. So we're just going to see the fences he puts on it in order to make it a straight shot upwards towards godliness. Even though it's preferable, and even though it's more able to edify and evangelize, it still needs helpful limitations because it's something that people, and maybe you've experienced this, people can try their hand at it, maybe even fake it, and, and, and develop for themselves a sense of pride. Even if it's genuine, it can lead to pride or power and manipulation of other people. So Paul's guidelines become helpful. He gives almost the exact same guidelines to tongues and to prophecy. He says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. So again, two or three. Now, the commentators sort of disagree because when he's speaking of tongues, he says at most two or three. And when he's speaking of prophecy, he says two or three and then weigh what is said. And so there's a question, is Paul saying at, he doesn't say at most when he's talking about prophecy. So is he leaving room for more, but saying two or three at a time before it's all assessed and weighed? I'm not convinced on that. I think that just in the context and the flow of what he's saying, I think it should be understood as a general rule, two or three at most. And yet, in particular times of maybe affliction on the church or need of God's uh, interference, maybe there will be times when it can be more than two or three. But I think as the general practice, it should be understood, just like tongues, this is not something that should be let to go on and distract and become main stage. Let only two or three prophets speak. And then in verse 29, he says, <clears throat> uh, and let the others weigh what is said. Let the others weigh what is said. This is really the, the prophecy equivalent of interpreting the tongues. If you really are sure that the, the Lord is giving you something to say, then it will be something that is not afraid of discernment and criticism and assessment and being weighed up. Always run far and wide or make them run far and wide if people claim to be prophets, but they're above discerning and questioning and say things like, touch not the Lord's anointed. Would you dare question what God's doing through me? Yes, always yes. We question everybody. Test every spirit, the, the apostle John said. So the whole church, the whole church together, if a prophecy is shared, and maybe that's somebody's giving it to an elder who will come and say it, or maybe it's the person themselves will share something, the whole church is to be active in thinking discerningly around what is shared. Questions like these. Number one, does it agree with Scripture? Number two, is it in accord with love? Number three, does it exalt Christ? Number four, being a prophecy, is it upbuilding, encouraging, and consoling to the church, as we're told prophecies will be? Number five, was it spoken intelligibly or understandably? Because we're told that that is the point of prophecy, is to be understandable, not, not, not crazy and on fire and out of order. Number six, is that person a holy person who's speaking this prophecy? And number seven, was it able to be evangelistic? Was this something that, that was able to lead people to salvation in Jesus Christ if they hear it? Not always going to be the case, but at least 
that possibility should be there. Now, everyone must be tested unless they're bringing a, 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 a chapter and verse like a sermon. But even those things that I will then apply or explain, very similar to prophets who will, who will, who will say that they've received from the Lord, everything without a chapter and a verse must be tested. We can't say that enough. And then the third limitation he gives, so he says, two or three, it's got to be weighed up by the church. And then number three, he says, and one by one, or one at a time. He says that in verse, uh, uh, verse 31. He says, for, all, uh, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Which means, I have a problem with, even, even some of my uh, some reform guys who I otherwise like reading, who are charismatics, who have, after the service or in the last few worship songs, maybe they'll do in their, in their church, what they'll do is ministry time where you come down to a, to a prophet to receive uh, a prayer over or something they've received from the Lord, and, uh, which, which seems to me entirely to be in uh, opposition to this very verse which says that if God is giving a message of prophecy during the worship assembly, then it's for everybody. And it needs to be one by one, not a whole bunch of people down in the wings or walking throughout the congregation giving prophecy. It's actually something more decent, more orderly, and more structured than that. It's to everybody, to be weighed by everybody, one at a time, not many at once. This is very practical because in the Corinthian church, they were allowing... Yes, in tongues and also in prophecy, self-control to go out the window because now I'm under spirit control. There's self-control and that's decent and orderly. And then there's spirit control. And when he's in you, who knows what's going to happen? I'm just prophesying. I can't stop. I'm saying all sorts of things. Maybe it's a ridiculous thing. Maybe it's gossiping. Maybe it's truly outlandish. It doesn't matter. It's the spirit. I can't help it. The spirit made me do it. And so the very next limitation which he gives is specific to prophecy when he says uh, in verse 30, uh, yes, verse 30, he says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So in other words, the, the, the person who's up front and they're sharing a prophecy, somebody else gets a prophecy, puts their hand up. The first guy is in control of self, able to stop his speaking and allow somebody else to come up and he is then to be silent. So, so that they must have in the Corinthian church, if they're doing the gifts the way that Paul sees it happening as an authoritative apostle, they will have self-control, which is what verse 32 goes on to say. He says, the spirits of the prophets, that is the personal soul and spirit of the one who is gifted as a prophet, the spirits of the prophet are subject to the prophets. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So the spirit, a prophet is not able to say, well, the, the spirit's just out of control in me. No, Paul says, your, your own spirit is subject to your control as one gifted rationally, intelligibly, understandably, decently, and orderly. Does it make sense? Prophecy must be done in this orderly and upbuilding way. And again, if, if we can imagine the before and after. Before, anyone prophesying at any time, maybe in a corner to a group of people, maybe to the clique over here that they're trying to control, maybe to the, the rich over here and the poor are segregated over here, people prophesying in all of this disorderly way, all at the same time, and none of it is being weighed. And then afterwards, he says, 
If you claim to have the Spirit giving you messages, then submit that prophecy for weighing and assessment and that if those elders in the, in the room would allow for that to be shared, maybe it's this week, maybe it's in weeks to come, maybe it'll be shared without us even explicitly saying it was a prophecy, but rather just a word of encouragement. Whatever it's going to be, if, if your prophecy is not willing to be assessed and then utilized as the church leaders see fit, then it's not a spiritually given prophecy. Or at least you're not a spiritually mature prophet. So it's not to, uh, not, not to be said here that, that nothing, uh, rather, that, that, that if a prophecy is not to be spoken from the front, then it's not a true prophecy. But rather, there are times that you might receive prophetic words, messages, encouragements, or exhortations that don't have their fulfillment in place in the public assembly, but should be shared later with somebody. It should be spoken to somebody individually and humbly and with lots of prayer around it. That it might be in a small group. It might be individually. Like we've said, God uses these gifts in a manifold of ways and none of them should overtake and derail the local worship service. So in this way, arrogant prophets, if they were seeking to lord it over and utilize their gift over other people, have now been silenced. And what is left is orderly, decent, edifying space for prophecy to be done publicly. Paul's pretty smart. I think, I think he's laying down some pretty good rules here. <clears throat> and how practical they would have been and relieving they would have been for those being abused by spiritual gifted people in Corinth. The last one here is, and this is where I make you really glad you're not a pastor, <clears throat> is rules for married women. This section, which I'll read first and then get into it, has caused so much controversy. In fact, so much controversy. You know when something's so controversial, it doesn't even cause controversy? Like it was so controversial, they just think you're an idiot for saying that, and so they just glide over it and pretend it wasn't even said. He couldn't possibly have meant that. Let's just move on. Some people hold that in, in, in what Paul's about to say. Some people think this was added later and is not a part of the original book. Some people think that Paul said it, but he's a misogynist. And the feminist age has come around and helped us re-clarify what God really meant. Some people believe that he said it, but it was only to the women of that day, in that age, because of certain cultural situations, which we don't see that in the context. That's not Paul's reasoning for saying any of this. Or some people say that, yes, he said it, uh, but it was only to the women who were particularly uh, uh, disorderly and rude and unsubmissive, and it wasn't to all women which isn't the case also because he says, in the very first verse here, as in all the churches of the saints. So it's not something that's merely specific to those certain women in the group, but to all married women. Here's what the verses say, and then would you give me the patience of explaining and bringing clarity to it. Verse 33, halfway through says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Any willing amens? All I did was read Bible. We always amen Bible. But let me clarify and, and help to bring this out. I've, I've heard, I listened to a couple of, couple of sermons this week, which really twisted this to abuse. Let's not pretend that doesn't happen that the, the right meaning of Scripture is not misapplied and twisted to people's hurt. 
let's not also pretend that any of these other Options are open to us as Bible-believing Christians who believe in the sovereignty of the Word of God and its infallibility. Rather, what Paul is speaking about here is um, he's speaking to the situation of accord and, uh, and unity in the marriages of the church members. So that his, uh, his main concern is that where husbands are failing to lead as the head, and where wives are failing in the public assembly to submit as the helper, that that would be addressed because it's disgraceful and shameful what was currently happening at the time. I think that, here's my reasons, because I I try and be an exegetical guy, here's my reasons for believing that that is the position to hold, and then we'll explain what it is he was in fact saying. So the situation is that he's speaking to married women, particularly about the issues of unsubmissiveness to the husbands in a way that brings disgrace to them. First of all, because the word here for women and wives are the exact same word. So the the Greek word for women and wives or man and husband are the same word. And so it's up to the context to allow us to interpret it or translate it each way. I think that it is fair where the ESV um, uh, translates it as wives in some parts and women in other parts, man in some parts, and husbands at other parts. Secondly, the idea of submission is not in Scripture from women in general to men in general. But like we saw in chapter 11, like we'll see in Ephesians 5, like we'll see in 1 Peter 3 uh, and in, in 1 Timothy 2, submission is something that happens in relationships that are specific and covenantal. Marriage, husband and wife, Church between pastors and and congregations, uh, people and the government, and of course the whole church and Christ. Submission in this context suggests to us that it is talking about the relational uh, manner of the marriage and not simply the dynamic between men and women in general in the church. Thirdly, he says here that women should ask their own men and that women don't own men, and men don't own women. However, wives have their own husbands, and husbands have their own wives. So so that uh, when he says that the wives should ask their own men, uh, this clearly seems to be suggesting that he's talking about the marriage situation. Number four, that's driven home by the fact that he says, ask them at home. What situation does a man and a woman have, another man or another woman at home, in, of course, marriage? heterosexual biblical marriage. And then, number five, it's because he says, the reason I believe it's talking about the marriage relationships in the church and not women straight out is because he does not say that what the women are doing is disorderly or indecent, which is the the context of what he's saying in the whole church order. Rather, he says that it's disgraceful or shameful which is the language he uses back in 1 Corinthians 11 to talk about the marriage relationship. If there was disorder in the church, as we've seen already, Paul says it's disorderly and unedifying. But when it's the marriage relationship, this goes deeper, and this is disgraceful or shameful when that is brought into disrepute. So for all these reasons, I believe that the situation is that married women are not acting in in submission and respect to their husbands, and the husbands are not leading in their role as heads. That doesn't clarify, though, what he means. What's he saying? That's the situation he's speaking to, but what 
does he mean? And for that, we start breaking down the word. So he says here, as in all the churches of the saints, women should keep silent in the churches. Now for those, and there are those, who would take that and mean that women, not just wives, but women all should remain completely silent from call to worship to end of doxology. What they need to be, what they need to be is consistent. <clears throat> and the reason they can't be that in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians is because if you hold the position that silence means absolute silence, what you've done is completely derail what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's assuming and allowing that women will pray and prophesy in the church. Remember, he gave guidelines about the head coverings, which was to be a symbol of authority to their husbands and, and submission to their husbands. He's assuming that women are prophesying and praying and singing. I mean, people who hold this have to, have to hold it. It's all male choir, no female singing. Don't even cough and don't laugh. Don't laugh, just said, right? You're out of here. Put a hat on, cover your head, shush, right? That, that's what these people would have to be consistent in saying. But the textual reason they can't be consistent is because in this very text, Paul has already said the phrase, let them be silent, and he didn't mean absolute silence. He used it up in verse 28 when talking about the tongue speaker, saying, if there's not an interpreter, then keep silent, and he didn't mean, if you're a tongue speaker and there's no interpreter in the room, you're not allowed to sing. You're not allowed to pray. You're not allowed to amen at those parts in the worship or the sermon. He didn't mean absolute silence. He meant be silent in the context of your tongue speaking. Also, he said it to the prophet. He says, if another one starts speaking, you have to stop singing, speaking, breathing loudly, and amening anything for the rest of the service. No, he didn't mean that. But he did say, let them be silent, speaking contextually. Let them be silent as it pertains to that prophecy. So for that reason, Paul is speaking of a particular contextualized, situational silence that pertains to what he's talking about. Keep silent means not to verbally, not verbally partake in anything, but don't verbally partake in the thing he's talking about. The question now is, what is the thing he's talking about that women, wives, aren't allowed to do? The answer, I believe, is they are not allowed to partake in the public and verbal weighing and assessing and speaking out about prophecies that are given. I'm going to try and show this uh, textually, but he's, he's saying that the, what the wives must be silent in regards to is the weighing and assessing of the prophecy. There's lots of, I've, I've, I can't go into all the reasons that I've, I've been piling out of, the, uh, out of the commentaries, but there's a structural reason of the text, and then we're going to start looking at the, 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 the theological reasons. The structural reason is because the way that Paul writes this text um, about tongues and prophecy and, uh, and unruly wives is that he has said in each case, here's my blanket statement. Here's, an here's a condition, and here's my theological reasoning. He did that for tongues, he did that for prophecy, and he's doing that also for the women speaking in church. But also, verse 29, and we'll read it together, verse 29 has begun the section on prophecy. And it comes in two parts. Verse 29 is in two parts. The verses immediately following verse 29 explain the first parts. The verses immediately following 
uh, after those verses, explain the second part of verse 29. I know I'm doing a little bit of textual exegetical explanation. Thank you for being patient, but seek please to understand. So look back at verse 29. In verse 29, the two halves are, first of all, let two or three prophets speak. And the second part is, let the others weigh what is said. From verse 30 to 33, Paul explains what he means by, let two or three prophets speak. And in verse 34 through to verse 30, the end of verse 35, he explains what he means by, let the others weigh what is said. If that doesn't make sense, we've got it recorded, or I'll be here afterwards. <clears throat> or I can lend you one of my commentaries. So structurally speaking, it's not as if Paul has started a whole new conversation about women speaking in church, but that he's on the topic of assessing and weighing prophecies publicly. And in that instance, he says, women, wives, are not to be partaking in that public discussion. Why? Why, of course, would Paul be saying this? This has to be asked if we're to understand, and if we can get at the underlying principles, we can start applying it more helpfully in our day. The confusion, which we saw back in chapter 11, was that the wives and the husbands were struggling to understand to what degree the marriage relationship and its dynamics of headship and submission, to what degree does that carry over to the church? Like when we're in church, is he fundamentally my husband, or are we more just brother and sister in the church together? And so can I lose this symbol of authority when I'm in the church? Uh, when I'm in the spirit, can I sort of like the slave and the slave owner have, you know, sort of removal of all status? Is that the situation I'm stepping into? Or do we sustain the marriage uh, dynamic in the Lord's worship service? And what added a layer of confusion to this was that they didn't have set-apart church buildings yet in Corinth. They were meeting in people's homes. So if somebody's asking the question, well, am, am I to act as I am at church or am I, am I to act out as if I am at home? Well, even if you were to say, no, no, church is different, but it's still sometimes in your home. And so all of this confusion breaks out. And Paul's simple uh, procedure was to say, women, married women and husbands Remain and retain that dynamic in the church and at home. Because this is not a surface-level, man-created thing like employers or like government and, uh, and the people, so that when you come to church, you, you throw off those limitations. Marriage is something ordained and given by God with the hierarchy of male headship and leadership and female respect and submission. And that's not lost. That's a good and beautiful thing that you don't become free of to come into church. It's something that is maintained and, uh, and taken joy in, even in the church. And in similar confusions are bubbling under the surface in chapter 14. You can imagine if somebody was to, was to partake in prophecy, and that will be a male or a female in Corinth, if they were to partake in giving public prophecy, the wives are not to be engaged in the questioning and the weighing and assessing of those prophecies. Firstly, the commentators say, because in a Greco-Roman uh, uh, culture especially, the speaking in an intimate and elongated dialogue between a married woman and another married man, or a single woman and a married man, is very inappropriate. 
And even though we're not in the Greco-Roman uh, situation anymore, that's, that same dynamic still continues. Uh, the, you can imagine if there was a, a prophecy given and then one gal and a married guy start having elongated discussion and spiritual conversation, whether or not there's any ill motives there, it's just plain awkward. It, it just has room for, uh, 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 for misunderstanding and confusion. But also, the reality is, that as husbands would give prophecies, the, the women, and this is probably more what Paul is having in the, in the back of his mind, as the husbands would give prophecies, the wife would put up her hand and say, yeah, I've got an assessment of that. Mr. You're prophesying that so-and-so needs to love his wife. I've got a prophecy about the bins that I've been asking you for the last three days, right? You, you, you missed that message from the Lord, did you? Or, or you can imagine uh, situations between prophesying husband and then questioning wife that every, I don't know if you've been in a members meeting like that, that a husband will say something and then just another well-meaning member who happens to be his wife stands up and shoots down that dumb idea. And it's just, it's, it's now very awkward, not only because is this a marriage thing or is this a church thing? Am I allowed to say something or is that a them thing? Uh, and also, it's awkward because of the, the disgraceful and shameful nature of women publicly discouraging or shaming their husbands. And so what Paul says here is that in answer to that, which to the situation that was going on, which is that women are engaging in lengthy dialogues with married men or that women are bringing disgrace um, uh, uh, by questioning and de degrading their husbands publicly, he says the answer is submission, which he says even the law, that is the Old Testament, testifies. He doesn't quote a specific section here. He just appeals to the Old Testament as revealed from God that wives are to be submissive and husbands are to be the heads over their households. So what does, in this situation, submissive mean? Because we've already established that women are to be discerning the prophecies that are given. They are to be thinking deeply and questioning and, and having a, a, an assessment of what was just spoken. They are to be spiritually wise people. And yet, they are also to be able to have a healthy spirit of trust to their husbands and the other men in the congregation that these husbands can weigh up this prophecy they can dialogue and they can ask the tough questions and I trust them to arrive at a true conclusion. This is what Paul is encouraging the women to have. And it's a willingness to sit back, hold the tongue and obey Paul's commands which come with apostolic authority. But the wives are not to be engaged in the public assessing of the scripture. So we conclude that that was the men's job to be doing. What if, of course, they have something to contribute that wasn't answered? You know, they're, they're sitting here and they're, and, and probably very likely they think of something and somebody else, you know, says that. Okay, good, yeah. Oh, I was thinking of this though, and they're not allowed to say anything, but somebody, another guy brings up and voices that concern and they're, they're thankful. But what if they've got something that they're burning and they're, they're not thinking of this scripture? They're not thinking of this thing. They're not thinking of this dynamic and they're misunderstanding this prophecy. Even then, the, 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 the heart and the spirit of the wife is to sit in submission take it home and suggest it to and ask their husbands at home. We see that. Let's, let's just read it here. We see that in verse 35. If there is anything they desire to learn, such as, why didn't you say this? Why didn't this come to mind? Why wasn't this assessed in this light? 
If there is anything they seek to learn, then they should ask their own husbands at home. For it's shameful for a woman to speak in this situation in church. Disgraceful is, is the word that he means by shame. <clears throat> what this calls is not simply for women to move back. What the call is in Paul's mindset is that men need to step up and come forward. It's not simply a call that women are not to be thinking uh, discerningly. They must be, and they will be in our midst. However, we don't want them to be frustrated, annoyed, and uh, failing to grow because they have men around them, namely their husbands, who do not see a spiritually, theologically hungry wife as a blessing to be sown into with infinite dividends into the future. Can I just get an amen from every husband who loves that his wife is a student of Scripture? Amen. At least two of you. That's great. And, and I'll amen myself because that was a tremendous word. I love having a wife who doesn't just take shallow uh, uh, applications from Scripture and shrug the shoulders saying, well, the men do good thinking, me don't do good think, me just go heaven. Right? What we want is, and, and let's, let's be honest here, frequently people will hear what Paul says and go, really, Paul? If a woman happens to want to learn something, she can ask her husband at home. Obviously, to Paul, he would be be amazed at the fact that there would be theologically hungry women. Like, he doesn't even have a category for that. I mean, I suppose if a woman has a question, you know, if if they could even speak the language, then yeah, they can ask their husbands at home in between meals. That's not Paul's understanding. If you read what Paul is saying, he's assuming that there are on fire, theologically informed, Bible-studying women in the congregation, and his call is to the husbands, do not let that growing vine wither or be tempted to disgrace by your lack of care and sowing into that rich soil. He's saying the woman should be able to sit steady and calm in church as things go on in the prophecy time, because she knows her husband is a leader, a reader, a a prophecy weigher, a theological learner. She's able to rest in him on that, and that should be the expectation to every man and especially husbands in the church. You You are pastors over your family. You are the teachers of your wife. Not assuming she knows nothing, but assuming that you want to see each other grow. God gave Adam the command, put him in headship over the garden, and then gave him Eve. It was his responsibility to educate his wife. And when false teaching came in through Satan, he was to step in, correct, and protect. Failing to do so, the disgraceful turn of the gender um, roles brought about the fall. What Paul is calling us to is men to have heads screwed on, theology learning, lectures listening, Bible open. We need to be men like this so that our wives can be sown into and taught more and more and more. It is, in fact, not usually, at least in my experience, it's not usually the case that we've got a Bible-hungry, theologically-informed husband and a dragging wife who just doesn't care. Sadly, what I see much more frequently is a wife who would love to be 
having these rich, deep theological discussions at home, who would love to be able to have their answers given at home, and yet struggles with that dynamic because a husband is either not very informed or downright lazy and cowardly, simply saying, ask the pastor at church, Google it. I'm sure there's something online. Isn't there a lecturer somewhere who can help you with this? That's just not my calling. Somebody who is shirking that responsibility, and it's a shame, and it's a sin. And, and some women would ask, well, what if I'm, what if I'm a woman, and, and my husband is less uh, theologically robust? Like, he doesn't care as much as me about learning. And of course, the answer is, don't marry him. And that's not a joke at men who, who struggle to learn. That's the reality of marriage. Would you marry a man who can't financially su su support you? No. Part of his calling is also to spiritually and theologically support you. Don't marry him if he can't, if he can't keep up, if you're just always miles ahead of him and you've got to find other guys or just gals to talk to uh, about the Bible. If you want something deep, that's not a good dynamic. Now, of course, the situation sometimes is that we got married, we were pretty equally yoked, and then she starts taking off. Guess what? Paul's word to the men is catch up Try and overtake, sow into her, do everything you can. I'm sorry. that I'm not sorry. It's glorious, but that's your calling now, is to become more robust than you were because God has given you a blessing in a Bible-hungry wife. It is a blessing, and you must be found faithful with this weapon of a woman that you've been given, lest she be tempted like Eve to be disgraceful because you are disgracing her by not caring for her. That would be the call to the, to the women and the men in the, uh, with broader application, of course, than just prophecy. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll close out here where Paul says in verse 36, sorry, verse 35. Uh, no, I do, I beg your pardon, verse 36. In response to, he's realistic, which again means pessimistic. He knows that the feminists and the immature tongue speakers and the arrogant prophecy speakers, he knows they're going to come pushing back on him because he's just not as spiritual as they are. And so he says, tell me, was it from you that the word of the Lord came? Did the word of God come from you or say an apostle? Did you evangelize me or did I evangelize you, Corinth? He says, are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing are a command of the Lord. So to the, the female who might think, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to shirk and disgrace my husband. It doesn't matter. My own, own impressiveness matters here. Or to the tongue speaker who thinks that I, I don't care for the others. I need to express this bubbling spirituality. Or to the prophecy speaker who doesn't care for the guidelines given, but wants to be seen as a speaker of the word of God. Paul says, you are not recognized in verse 38. You are, if you do not recognize this writing, which is a command of the Lord, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The significance of this is weighty. There are entire movements that are built on the disregarding of one of these sections. Either what Paul says to tongues, and, and so it's wild and it's a frenzy and it's everywhere, or what Paul says to the women, or what Paul says to the prophecy speakers. 
And it's dangerous because it comes with the curse of God. Not in an immediate fire from heaven, but a distraction and a decay of those denominations and movements so that the word of God becomes secondary, their pastors wave rainbow flags, and the entire gospel is diminished. They become theological liberals, and God puts out their lampstand in his presence, removed, not recognized. It's not a church you want to be a part of that takes any of these or any commandments of the Lord lightly. Let us be found faithful who love the word of God and seek with humble hearts to be found in a church that preaches the word generation after generation. And of course, as we close out, the the word that is ultimate, the word that Paul is writing all of this to protect is the word of the gospel. The reason we come here tonight, and maybe you weren't pining all week to learn about prophecy in tongues. Maybe you weren't kept up at certain parts of the week with with guilt over misunderstanding prophecy and tongues. Maybe you come here because, and and what what has been weighing on your heart has been the guilt of sin. When you've come as a Christian, struggling in and out of the ups and downs of life, what you come to be renewed on is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We are made righteous before God, not by our own doing, but because of the mercy and grace of God. We have failed, we are condemned, we are sinful, we are disgusting, we are rebels. Jesus came as a servant and a slave to us rebels, giving us a righteousness out of his own life, dying under the wrath of God, the due penalty for our sins, so that he can raise again as a victor, the king, the Lord of all, with the highest name that is above every other name, so that at his name every knee will bow. And you will bow either now in submission and faith that receives eternal life, or you will be made to bow on the last day when you are judged and sent to hell. And the call of the gospel is to come now while Jesus offers his grace by the blood that was shed and the body that was bruised and broken for you. Come and receive God's grace. You need not die in your sins. Come and receive it all full, final, and free in Jesus Christ. Have faith, be saved. And if you wish to to come and speak more about that or, or find out for your own soul's salvation, come and talk to me after the service. I'm going to be right down the front. Let's pray. God, like the Corinthians, we go astray every time and any time that we disregard the word of the Lord. And when we have misunderstanding, our own foolishness carries us away and we find ourselves distracting from the pure mission of the gospel to see souls saved and we find ourselves self-seeking in prominence. God, I pray that you would make us a people who love Jesus so that then we love his church, his body, his bride. And that because we love Jesus, we want him to receive what he is due, which is the nations. There's not a soul on earth that Jesus is not worthy of receiving the praise from. There's not a single one of the elect that he died for who will not be brought into his people to give glory forevermore. And that we want to be busy on that mission, preaching the gospel, proclaiming Jesus, seeing souls saved and the church built. Father God, I pray that anyone who does not believe would tonight believe that all of those of us who have misunderstandings about your word, would you be gracious to lead us and teach us and guide us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Jesus who died and rose for us. And everybody said, Amen.